Hello, hello, and a warm welcome to the Professional Motor Mechanic podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Nee, editor of Professional Motor Mechanic magazine. The June issue of PMM is available now at your local factor. So why not pop down there and pick up a free copy? This month, we have a bumper-sized diagnostic troubleshooter from Ben Johnson concerning a BMW i3. Also, just a quick reminder, we are still on the hunt for the next aftermarket YouTube star. So if you fancy getting your hands on some equipment and getting paid for your opinion, then please get in contact with one of the PMM team. This episode, we're looking at the classic cars making a comeback with a little help this time around from Battery Power. Keep listening to find out more. We'll be finding out what's been going on in the aftermarket recently with Freya and Tom Henman, editor of Professional Motor Mechanic magazine, will be visiting a local motor factor and finding out how they have adapted their business to survive and thrive. But first, here's Freya with the news. Thank you, Kieran. It's good to be back. I'm Freya Coleman, PMM's news and products editor, here to bring you this month's aftermarket news. IMI Head calls ADAS skills gap matter of life or death. Oils Association VLS celebrates its 10th anniversary. Access to vehicle data remains competitive for garages as MVBEO instated by UK government. Large gap between number of vehicle charging points and EVs on the road revealed. IGA signs up for this year's Mechanics Free Seminar Programme. Steve Nash, CEO of the IMI, commented on the organisation's recent findings that the UK is heading for a major shortfall of ADAS qualified technicians. Nash told Kieran at the recent Auto Mechanica show about his fears for the sector. It's a worrying factor because, um, you know, as of this year, we're going to start to see more level three cars coming in. I think, you know, Ford have just launched cars with, a, with, with I forget what the system, they call the system, but quite extensive hands-off driving capability. We also caught up with VLS at Auto Mechanica to wish them a happy birthday and to speak with Chairman Mike Busey about what the organisation has achieved. I think one of the successes of the VLS is it, it put a stake in the ground and said, you know, there is a, an industry body here that, that's going to work with government agency and trading standards to try and police and set a high standard for the UK market. And we've been able to, you know, successfully do that for 10 years now. After lobbying from major industry trade bodies and a government consultation, the new motor vehicle block exemption order has come into force this month. This replaces the EU-backed MVBER and aims to better reflect the more specific needs of the UK aftermarket. It covers software, training and improved access to data. Recent figures show that there were 36 electric cars on UK roads per standard public charger at the end of last year, up from 31 at the close of 2021. The findings do nothing to ease range anxiety amongst EV sceptics. Lastly, we'd like to invite all our listeners to attend Mechanics, the trade show for aftermarket professionals. Set to take place on Tuesday the 7th and Wednesday the 8th of November, the free show is returning to Sandown Park in Surrey. This year features a bumper seminar programme, including the IGA, who have once again signed up to provide its much-loved MOT update. 
Register your free attendance at www.mechanics.info. And that's the news this month from PMM. And now back to Kieran. Thanks, Raya. And can I say it's great to have you back on the news desk this month. Before we head into this month's main feature, let's go to our main sponsor, Nitera. We caught up with UK Managing Director Marco Vovchina at, you guessed it, Auto Mechanica. NGK Sparkplugs UK Limited changed its name to Nitera UK Limited on April the 1st this year. What were the reasons behind the move? I think generally NGK obviously has been synonymous with the combustion engine for many years, certainly since its inception in 1936. But I think we are going through a transformation pretty much in line with the automotive industry and we're trying to move into a new future transitional um, path. So we're focusing on a number of areas that will not necessarily be purely automotive. So we're looking at mobility, which is automotive, medical, environment and energy and communications. And we felt that the name NGK Sparkplugs UK Limited perhaps was confusing and restrictive in, in, in holding other brands under that. We are obviously also moving all forward with potential acquisitions, joint ventures. So we, we look at the new name as perhaps almost like a holding company name where we can have other brands, other um, sectors under the NGK banner or Niterra banner. Why Niterra? What does it stand for? Niterra as a name is, is a, I suppose, a phrase that has been put together or a word. So Niteo in Latin means light and terra obviously means earth. And I think this reflects sort of Niterra's um, future view towards maybe being a more environmentally global company, environmental friendly, looking towards carbon neutrality as well, and perhaps reflects some of the, the sort of aspirational um, direction of the company, also linked to the change in the automotive industry, looking at EV and other technologies that will come to replace the internal combustion engine. NGK and NTK are respected brand names in the automotive aftermarket. Will these names continue? Definitely so. Um, you know, NGK and NTK are very strong brands, and all the garages recognise the brand. They've worked with the product. It's not something that we would ever replace. We feel that's very important, and we're trying to put that message across to people. You know, to truly understand that the packaging will still remain as NGK or NTK. Nothing changes um, in terms of the product quality. Um, these are brands that will remain under the Niterra umbrella in effect. With moves towards different business areas, such as the recent acquisition of Who Can Fix My Car, what does the future hold for automotive, particularly with the phasing out of ICE vehicles? Um, we see the automotive still obviously having a strong future, um, particularly in the aftermarket. Um, the combustion engine will remain and will be in place for some time there. Um, so we're very positive about the future of the aftermarket side of the business. OEM poses some challenges in effect, but we are, you know, with the new Niterra name, also moving towards looking at different technologies um, so that we can always remain a, a viable player in the automotive industry, regardless of the, the, the phasing out of the combustion engine. What are the challenges facing the company over the next five to ten years, both in the UK and globally? I think it is obviously the, the automotive change, the marketplace will move towards EVs or other alternative fuels. We are already working in partnership with a number of the OEMs looking at new technologies that we can introduce um, and I think that really is the primary focus for the business on the automotive side. 
For us also as a business, we need to transition. We are looking at other sectors, you know, the medical sector. Some years ago, we bought a medical business, um, care. Um, also looking at other completely different directions, as I said, with the environmental aspect and also communications. So we are diversifying as a business um, to, to sort of offset the, the, the demise, perhaps, of the combustion engine. The company has introduced a number of new automotive components over the last few years, particularly sensors. Will there be more new additions brought to the market in the future? Yeah, I mean, this has been very strong for NGK or Nutera. Um, you know, we've, we've already established quite a strong market leading position on the products that we've introduced through the engine management programs. Um, we are accelerating that. We'll be launching another product probably in the third quarter of this year. And we will aim to introduce a new engine management product annually, really. And that's something that the team really have embraced. And we're starting to see the position of the brand growing very strongly in the marketplace in addition to the traditional core products of spark plugs, glow plugs and lambda sensors. Can you foresee any collaborations with other businesses operating in the automotive sector in the future? I think that's something that we're open to. These are all topics that we're looking at um, as part of the transformational programme. Um, obviously we have the, the venture labs um, that we've set up looking at new business ideas, whether that we acquisition, joint venture or completely new product groups. You know, and I think that's what the Niterra name allows us to do, to focus into different sectors and introduce products that are not really related to NGK spark plugs um, as the traditional name was really. So really it's opening up to new industries, new markets, new products. Thanks Marco. Now. Back to our main feature. Now put your hand up if you're a fan of the Beatles. Don't do this, of course, if you're listening to this in the car. Keep your hand up if you're a fan of red telephone boxes. Keep your hand up if you enjoy a buttered hot cross bun and a cup of tea whilst watching Only Fools and Horses. Still got your hand up? Me too. That's because everything I just listed can safely be categorized in the classic category. If you have Marmite on your hot cross bun, I'm sorry, that is not a classic, and maybe you should reconsider listening to this podcast. I'm kidding, of course. Please keep listening. Let's just move on. Anyway, my point is that we as a country love the classics, and our taste in cars is no different. Sometimes, however, classics need to evolve with the times. Whilst the recent reboot of Porridge was a somewhat gruelling affair... Not all classic updates are a bad idea. Take, for example, the company Freya and I visited recently called Felten. Now, Felten manufacture EV kits, which can be retrofitted into bona fide classics such as the Mini Cooper, turning a gas guzzler into a motorized runaround. Take a listen to our visit to meet Felten founder and CEO, Chris Hazel. The whole thought process behind it is that classic cars are here to stay, they're getting older and older and they're going up in value continually. Yep. They're sort of becoming works of art, but people never drive them because they're worried they're going to break down. The younger generations love them, but I've got no idea how to work on a classic car because they're used to cars they can plug computers into these days. Um, so the sort of it becomes a bit of a hybrid mix of you've got a beautiful classic car, but then you've got modern day running gear on them. Um, so it, it drives beautifully but also looks beautiful whereas a lot of the new cars out on the market are fairly boring now right um, and the classics look cool your, your words not mine <laughs> my words <laughs> i do love the teslas and stuff but and they're great for us to nick parts from 
um, but they are all the same. And there's it's like the Ford Mondeo when that came out years ago, and you saw them everywhere. You're starting to see the same things with certain uh, certain of the EV, the new EVs out there. Um, so with the classic side of things, basically we'll take a classic vehicle as it stands. Uh, the engine and gearbox will normally be removed after it's been weighed. And then we'll basically design and develop a, a battery and a drivetrain that drops into the original space. Now, the, the main focus is to maintain the weight as close as possible and don't overweight the vehicle and keep the weight distribution the same, but also make it so it's bolting, so it can be put back to original in the future, um, which we probably think will never happen, but there's certain high-value cars where actually you want to make sure it can be resold as an ICE vehicle um, from a value point of view. The reason we tend to do a lot of the maintaining original and making it bolt in is that the chances are in five years time or 10 years time, someone will do another retrofit of the latest EV system. So by maintaining the original vehicle, you know what you've got there. Um, there's been a lot of companies over the years that have just cut stuff out, but they're not thinking in 10 years down the line when that classic gets refitted again to the latest stuff when batteries are half the size and you can double the range and stuff. So basically, we'll do that process. Um, everything becomes a bolt-in solution. So we'll design, develop, we'll manufacture the battery packs, the motor, the powertrain. Uh, we'll go on to the original prop shaft or the original drive shafts of the vehicle. In most cases, the brakes don't need to be altered. You can, but in a lot of situations, you add regenerative braking. So you end up with brake assist through that side of things yeah. uh, because you're not increasing the rate weight normally yeah you don't need to up it and there obviously will probably be more wear and tear on certain components because you you can tend to have more power and more performance um in these vehicles once all that's done then uh we're currently working with the dvla to have them registered as electric which means the tax class changes and all that sort of stuff and then they can go into the ules zones and all that stuff as a classic yeah make it all all official so um which which kits then do you, do you supply so currently we do classic minis uh, through Recharge Heritage and a couple of others. We do a Porsche 911 system, which we all sell to businesses. That's for the 964 and soon to be the G-Body, which is the 930 series. Um, we also do a universal box, which fits the Land Rovers. There will be a Land Rover kit at some point, but it's just taking time to get there. Yep. Um, but the universal packs we we now sell with the drivetrains can fit in a sort of quite a few different vehicles. Things like potentially Mustangs, Aston Martins, a range of different 4x4s. Um, so we're trying to bring out a couple more universal systems. Yeah. Because we know we don't have time to develop loads and loads of complete bolt-in systems. So it's enabling all the other shops out there maybe to have the big complicated bits done for them and they do all the brackets and the wiring limbs. Can you tell us a little bit about the, about the batteries and the motors themselves? Yeah, so we've got a range of different motors and batteries we use. Um, we did a lot with Tesla in the beginning. So that was Tesla Model S's and Model 3's, mainly because they're they're really efficient and you get an awful lot of performance for the money because you get them getting, uh, from a breaker's yard and then refurbish them. Uh, we've also got the new Zonic motor range that we run, which we actually have manufactured in China. We do three different sizes manufactured for us. And we have the Hyper 9 motors, which a lot more of the DIYers would have used because the Hyper 9s are under 120 volts. So they're seen as a lot safer to work with. Yep. And they're normally a big stepping stone for most of the companies out there would have started on a Hyper 9 or a forklift motor of some sort. And then they would have moved into more of the high voltage systems, which you, you see today. And then batteries, um, we have a mixture of different types. So Calb is one of them. And the other one we do a lot with is LG because we get overstock from LG at the moment. Yeah. Um, Battery supply can be difficult because a lot of the OEMs are now moving away from modules, which are usable, to putting the cells directly into the battery pack. And then the battery packs are a floor pan, and you can't fit that in a classic car. Yeah. So at some point, I think over the next year or so, we'll have to look a lot closer at where are we going to source modules from okay. for these vehicles. 
and, and in terms of sort of um, charging times and kilowatt hours, are they comparable to to uh, a, an OE that you buy from a, a vehicle manufacturer? Um, they're probably not quite there, mainly because we have limitations on so where we can put batteries. So things like in a classic mini, there's only certain places you can put them. You can't put them under the floor pan. Yeah. So the classic mini has just over 110 mile range. Yeah. Um, and it's about, I think, a three hour full, full recharge, but it's the ideal city car. It's the same weight as original. So it's, you know, it's like 600 or 700 kilos, whereas most EVs out there are easy 1.5 ton plus. Yeah. Um, the Porsches are um, 55 kilowatt hours, oh, sorry, 62 kilowatt hours on new Porsches, which is well over 200 mile range. Yeah. And that's got 70 kilowatt rapid charging. Yeah. So it will be less than an hour full charge. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 handy. And, and the Porsche goes pretty quick, I imagine. Yeah, I think we're we we sell them at saying they're about four point five, but we've pushed ours to about three point eight. Yeah. Zero to sixty. So, but the car doesn't like it that much. No. <laughs> it was never designed for it. So do it once. But <laughs> do it once. Twist it. the chassis and then don't yeah. take it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, I mean, tell me this this. When I first heard um, this idea, I thought this is a, quite a crazy idea. So, I mean, tell me how the idea came about and, and, and sort of how it all began. Um, so originally I had a, I started back in service world to service repair stuff. And then I had a small shop where I just did one-offs. So I do like wide body Audi R8s, turbo kits, just very low numbers, certain customers. And I take my time, two, three months to do a car. And one day I had a customer turn up, which had a split screen camper van, but he also had all the Tesla bits. Okay. And you couldn't find anyone to do it. Yeah. Um, and I'd been sort of dabbling. I bought a Tesla motor and was trying to work out how I how I get it to work and stuff. <laughs> so I basically met the open source community, which is Open Inverters or DIY Electric Car, which is where I got started probably just over five years ago. I also met my business partner, Alex, who's the other co-founder on that forum. Um, so I started with a split screen camper. I also did an electric Skyline myself, which is still here, but in lots of bits. Um, but we really started because we we managed to somehow get a job to build three stunt cars for a show in Macau, China, um, which were all electric. And they were two Nissan 350 sets, one Porsche 911, but they were a space frame chassis with Tesla running gear, yeah, which was great. But no one else could do it at the time or wanted to do it. So we took the risk, did it. And that's what really got us going down that route. Um, the exciting thing was we then moved more towards team, a TV film world, stunt yeah. vehicle world, rather than direct to public, yeah. which meant we had an opportunity where we could build cars, they'd go and get used and abused on film sets, and then they get taken apart again. So there was no legacy work out there with the public. So we managed to learn quick. And if we made little errors as we started out, they were only getting used for a week or two, and then they'd get taken apart. So it allowed us this great time to rapidly prototype and try loads and loads of things. And all the t uh, team film, uh, film TV lot are all motorsport engineers. So the level of work they work at really sort of was very hard. Dragged us up with him, yeah. yeah. Um, so we did some really exciting stuff. We were involved in the electric Batmobile, um, which was the one that Robert Patterson film. Um, there's another couple of films coming out this year that we've been involved with. I think we also did an electric tram on the Harry Potter stuff and things like that. So we've done quite a few really cool, odd projects. People are aware of your work, even if they're not aware that they're aware. Exactly, they're hidden away in, in, in film and TV yeah. world. Um, so that was really exciting. And then more recently, we've moved towards development of complete systems and supporting EV shops with supply of parts. Because um, we're starting to see that the, the sort of the older mechanic era, the people doing classic cars are trying to work out what is their future of their company now because the petrol engines are going to die out. Do they stay as just specialists or do they start offering another thing to their customer base? Um, there is the EV conversion shops out there, which are great, and we supply a lot of them, but they're not specialists in particular vehicles. They do any vehicle you take in. Yep. 
Whereas if you go to a specialist E-type shop, it's probably better, in my opinion, for them to learn how to do the EV bit because they know how to do the car to such a high level and they have a massive customer base which trusts them. Um, so we're trying to now get to the point where we can enable all the original restoration shops and upskill them yep. with our training courses and our kits so they can then offer their customers a really high-quality high EV system, but they can do the bit they've always been amazing at, which is refurbishing the car to such a high level. Yeah, okay. So, so a garage listening to this, uh, I think, oh, that's, you know, that sounds interesting. What's the next step? How, how do they get involved? Uh, next step is probably send an email to our sales team, uh, which is sales at felton.com. Um, we have basically, we're trying to bring on approved partners. Um, there's a certain set of requirements we need just to see that they are actually a, good, a reputable shop. Yep. They have the relevant insurances in place and stuff like that. We then push them to do our sitting girls training courses. So at least they've come into our, our location. They've done the base training around high voltage and things like that. So they've got base knowledge. And then we'll try and get them started off with one of our more standardized systems, preferably not a customer car. So something they can build with their team to just get their head around that everything works and have a bit of fun with yeah. before they then go and build like a, a high-end finished vehicle for an end user. What, what do you think the appeal would be of, of these, these kits in the, um, in the classic cars? Why, why do them? Why do them? I think because as we're seeing over the years now, classics just aren't getting driven. You see them at the old shows, you never see them on the road anymore. Um, I think the younger generations are starting to forget yeah, what they were. They're museum pieces. They are museum pieces, yeah. They don't get enjoyed. They just get, and in my head, I don't see the point in having a classic car if you don't drive it. Get them off the driveway. Yeah, it just seems, it seems crazy. You drive them once a week. And we've seen a lot of situations now with the Porsches is that we've got a Porsche G-Body electric. When we first bought it, it was petrol. And it, it wasn't that nice to drive because it was always going, when's it going to break down? How much oil is it going to leave on the floor? And as soon as it went electric, I think I drove it for a year straight, every single day for a year. Yeah. To and from work for testing. Winter, in the middle of summer. Every, so it just suddenly became this car that was a daily driver. Yeah. But it was still a classic. Yeah. The other thing, it meant that the, the classic car shops, which do the repair and maintenance on these vehicles, suddenly get more work because there's going to be more miles going on the classics. And I think it would be right in saying there's, there's something about classic cars that's just refreshingly simple. So I think that there probably are people out there that want to drive an EV because not only is it good for the environment, but it's also a, a nice drive, but they don't want the bells and whistles. They don't want a Tesla big screen. And Yeah, we try and do it subtly. So you've still got a shifter, even if it only does drive neutral reverse. You've still got analog gauges, but they're just canvas driven behind. So they yeah. still look original. So the whole point is you look in the car and you don't know it's electric. Really interesting stuff from Chris there, and probably an opportunity many of you didn't realize was open to you. Hopefully some of you decide to get involved, and if you do, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Now let's head over to Tom, who's visiting a local family factor in the Midlands. Sorry, Kieran, I just need to take a moment after it was finally confirmed that my beloved Leicester City won't be playing top flight football next season. After trophies galore, European football, we've come down back to earth with a bang. Still, that's how it goes sometimes, and I'm sure there are plenty of football fans amongst our followers that will understand and feel my pain today. Anyway, there's always next season. To more important matters, since I last spoke to you, news has broken about AAG's acquisition of CAR. There are around 300 members within the group, so a significant takeover. It'll be interesting to discover how this deal impacts AAG's retail arm. In fact, I'm going to be posing this question in an interview that will be taking place shortly. 
I might even try to bring that to you in the next episode of the PMM podcast. I've been out and about as usual visiting PMF readers. It's always humbling when you're invited in instead of having to approach readers asking to visit their premises. So I was delighted to meet Habil and Haki Kapasi of Jivaji Auto Factors in Lozelles. It's an accessory shop that's sandwiched between other independents. In fact, scanning the street in both directions, the vast majority of the businesses were independent, which gives a strong family, close-knit community. Hacky thrust a copy of PMF into my hands as I arrived. I knew I was off to a good start. Excited to tell Javaji's story, Habil, Hacky's brother, gave a potted history. Started when my parents left Uganda in 72 in Hansworth, Birmingham. Uh, then 73, we opened here in Lozells. Mum and dad running the show with various members of staff who have come and gone. Uh, one particular guy, Frank, who uh, stayed with us for kind of 40 years and passed away a couple of years ago. So basically the three of them, my mum, my dad and a guy called Frank, ran the business for that period. With an intersection of about six years, because in 86 there were the Hansworth riots, so the shop was levelled, totally burnt to the ground. In fact, the whole row was. And then it was rebuilt in about 90, which is when they came back up and started trading from here again. In that period between 86 and 90, when the shop was burnt down, was when we started the software side of business. Then 2000, kind of 99, 2000, we started the wholesale side of the business and moved away from retail. And today we're running both. I was keen to learn more about the so-called software side of the business, so I handed it back to Hacky, and he introduced me to Andy Jones, who was responsible for the upkeep of the software, data, and marketing of the business. So my dad at the time was looking around for something that would fulfil his needs, but it was all, you know, totally unaffordable. You know, even back then, the quotes were like for 40000 20000 and that was impossible to afford, especially for a business that just to the ground yeah I can imagine uh, and it's still unaffordable now in all honesty so he started busying away on a little Sinclair a little 128k thing and uh, developed a little program and then upscaled it slowly slowly for his own use he was, his idea was always just for himself uh, but uh, a friend of ours runs a motor factors as well and said oh I like the look of that and that's how it snowballed and ended up being in a few different places all over the country. It was his hobby that turned into kind of a sideline business. During the interview, it became clear that the factoring side of the business had almost disappeared, apart from a few nearby garages that have enjoyed availability and a strong relationship with Javaji over a considerable period of time. It was very much a public-facing retailer. I couldn't help noticing the brand Autotech dotted around the store, both Habil and Haki explained the origins of the brand. As part of the wholesaling side, we developed our own brand called Autotech. So we currently have brake pads, oils, fluids, all in our own brand that are brought in globally, uh, branded for us. And that's what a big part of the market that we sell to our wholesale side of our customers. Okay. And, and, uh, and I have to say, I mean, for example, the brake pads, uh, we test tested them before you know releasing them on the market and the the, the garages where we tested them they would just only ask for it by name really yeah. 
So there we have it. A lovely bunch of people taking a slightly different route, but enjoying the journey as they explore it. I should also point out that this year is Shivaji's 50th anniversary, so I wish them many congratulations. Kieran, back to you. My commiserations, Tom. Maybe next year, eh? Anyway, without further ado, thanks to all our guests, thanks to Natera for sponsoring this month, and thanks to you for listening. See you next month. Cheerio.